Dr. Meehan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Can you just start with giving us an introduction of your professional background? Sure. Um, I've been basically an educator my whole life. Uh, I started teaching sixth grade my first year and then high school, upper school, uh, for a number of years uh, at the Heights School um, in Potomac, Maryland. It's a really wonderful boys prep school there. Uh, I was also the admissions director, um, helped start to design some courses there, went back to graduate school um, and uh, studied under uh, Jerry Wegemer, uh, who's a, a wonderful Thomas More scholar uh, at the University of Dallas and the, the founding director of the Center for Thomas More Studies, which is kind of an international clearinghouse for all Morian study. Um, he's written a number of books on more and education um, and uh, and statecraft and politics. And uh, and then came back to uh, the Heights, designed a number of curriculum, you know, additions, new classes and uh, some some really neat courses for them. Uh, taught for a number of years more and then started adjuncting for Hillsdale College in D.C. They have a Washington campus uh, and then eventually became a fellow there and then uh, became the director of academic programs. And now I'm the associate dean of the Van Andel Graduate School of Government there and assistant professor of government. Basically helped to found this new graduate school of government right on Capitol Hill. It's the only institution of higher learning on Capitol Hill. Mm. Um, and it's a you know fully functioning master's in government. We also have an undergraduate program. Students come from the home campus in Hillsdale, Michigan and, and intern on the Hill and then take classes with us in the evenings. Uh, and so I do a lot of teaching. I do a lot of administrating. Uh, and then I've also written two children's books um, and writing uh, several more um one's called the handsome little signet i think it's right here and then the other one's called mr Meehan's mildly amusing mythical mammals uh, and they're basically kind of um uh up your alley actually in that they're really concerned with the sort of imaginative and emotional health of children uh and how to sort of prepare them for uh their um, adult life with people talk about the moral imagination but that's in one sense a very broad and gauzy topic or or concept, but this gets down more into kind of nano machines. Uh, like here are the things that might be very useful for your imagination to help you navigate. The first book's about sadness uh, and how to overcome it, and the second book is about identity um, and how to strengthen a healthy, natural, and loving identity for oneself. Um, and they're fully illustrated by a beautiful uh, illustrator and friend of mine who's classically trained. So I do kind of more scholarship, Cicero. I teach Aristotle. Um, I teach literary. I just got done teaching an Odyssey course um, on how to look at Odysseus um, for uh, basically prudence um, and shrewdness in government uh, and political leadership. And I do a lot of political leadership through um through literature is, is kind of an interesting flavor following uh, John Alvis uh, and frankly, Thomas Moore and Jerry Wegemer. But that's the long and short of it. I'm married. I've uh, a whole passel of children out here in uh, Northern Virginia and the suburbs of DC. Um, and I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri. You're living the dream. What a privilege it is to be able to read those great works. It is, it's lovely. 
So there, there's one concept that has a, you, you've studied quite a bit through your education, um, which in, in the modern parlance may be called virtuous leadership, which is one of the themes of this podcast. Uh, my understanding is in the past, it's been referred to as the friendships or leading citizen. Can you tell us more about what this concept means? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's kind of taken a number of twists and turns over the years. Uh, but uh, the, the, I think the sort of pure form original concept is the one sort of most worthy of consideration. But uh, it's the same word where we get Machiavelli's prince or the medieval kind of, you know, prince charming or the ecclesial, the princes of the church, how the Roman Catholic Church refers to cardinals. But it really dates all the way back to uh, Roman Republican times, the princeps or princeps, but the princeps is um, basically he who captures the first place in a race, i.e. Um, on with rules in a fair game, right? So it's not like a prince who elevates himself above everyone else and subjects them, but basically is the first among equals. Um, and right, to capture the first place, primus kepi, right, capio, to, to seize the first place, uh, pring keps, is, uh, is, you know, quite a feat, right? And it, it refers to someone who's, generally speaking, captured high office in some way or sort of risen to the top through honor and excellence. Um, but obviously it's more than just having sort of won some sort of first prize, the the you know, with uh, great power comes great responsibility to quote our favorite Spider-Man phrase. Um, the uh, the princeps as a concept developed by Cicero, Marcus Tullius Cicero, the great sort of defender of Roman Republicanism um, and the great, you know, sort of orator and philosopher. That concept in Cicero is uh, developed with uh, a number of key virtues in mind, and not just virtues, even arts that must be developed. Uh, and uh, th those virtues in one sense are not foreign to us. They are the cardinal virtues of temperance, justice, uh, fortitude or courage and prudence. But uh, but that's not really enough of, um, of an account. The, the way that Cicero uh, puts forward the princeps, both in sort of observing how they operate in a healthy regime, a healthy society, but also sort of demanding a kind of higher bar, like try to do it even better, involves some curiously important details. Like, for instance, one of them is magnanimity. That is to say, you have to have a certain greatness of soul that is utterly... Uh, spite or despises the worry over um the negative consequences that may come from difficult leadership tasks right that is to say you have to basically be ready for you know anything with regard to great suffering reversals shame attacks right which you know when you get down to it most people actually don't try to seize the first place precisely because they don't want that headache that's very frightening, actually, to most people. Um, and a certain greatness of soul requires, in a certain sense, a perfection of courage. It's not just battle courage, but is that courage where you're going to do good things, even though you know you will basically rouse up criticism and enemies, right, who will try to tear you down. 
Um, Cicero was very conscious of this in his entire professional life. Every time he notched up a level in notoriety or excellence, uh, he gained a few more enemies. Uh, and that's, alas, that's the nature of the world. Um, if you're going to do justice, those who are less interested in justice are going to see you as their enemy. Um, so that's one thing is just sort of to have a certain greatness of soul and a desire to help, right? Not just your personal party or your family or yourself, but to see your good identified with the entire common good of your political community, right? And 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 then suffer for that um, and suffer a lot, right? Like actually, you know, sacrifice for it. Uh, that's one. And that's, that's quite a hard thing to do. <laughs> it takes a lot of preparation and thinking and prep, you know, sort of like practice. Like you can't just do that overnight. You're not going to make good decisions um, unless you're basically have it in mind to be sort of tacking the ship in those kinds of directions towards courage. Um, another one that's, so this is not a virtue, but it's another sort of aspect. I guess it's related to a, a virtue, the virtue of moderation. Um, and modesty, but if you notice moderation and modesty, can you hear the two words modus, mode in there? Uh, Cicero is very keen on this idea of always making sure that you are operating in a rational mode, that you do not give in to frenzy, uh, you do not give in to a certain kind of uh, excitableness uh, that is disruptive and breeds distrust. Like, oh, something's wrong with that person, right? Um, but but also that everything you do should be imbued with reason. Um, and part of the, the concern for that is reason will make you attentive in a certain sense to all of the various ramifications of your acts, which will allow you to then be even more just so you can actually right calculate properly. If I do this, what example will it give to everyone else around me? The mode right? If you're in concern with the mode of something, you're concerned with not the essence of the thing, but in a certain sense, the way in which the thing is done, the exterior qualities. That is to say, right, the reflective exterior social ramifications of what you do, right? And that's something that the princeps needs to be very concerned with for two reasons. One, it's just part of justice, right? Like if you're going to be a just man, right? If you're going to be a just woman, if you're going to be a great leader, right? Of other people, then you have to be very attentive to all of the various refinements of giving to each their due and doing no harm. And part of doing no harm is making sure that you don't set any bad examples, right? That you do not create impressions that harm other people. So uh, that's one, but but as a result of being a princeps, that is someone who's pursuing virtue and greatness of soul, and thus, in a certain sense, rising up level after level, like not to be uh, too meta here, but you're launching a podcast, right? Like this is the first episode of a new podcast. You're putting yourself out there before others. So insofar as anyone puts themselves out there as a children's author or as a professor or as a doctor, right, or as an entertainer, any any level of exposure and elevation beyond sort of everybody else, the group, you step up to the microphone, up on stage, suddenly all eyes are on you. And everyone, it turns out, is highly mimetic. We are all, this is right out of Cicero, we all imitate what we see. Monkey see, monkey do. We do what we see around us. 
And so if you are going to be elevated and you know you're actually going to be elevated, then you need to be even more concerned with modesty, moderation, the mode, and making sure that everything you do is rational, thoughtful, thought through, just, right? And that sets a good example for everyone else around you. Those are sort of two kind of, you can see that's that's virtue and you can see those are simple virtues, but it's a much more elaborated and refined understanding of how to be virtuous in a kind of social context of leadership. And then the last thing I'll just, there's more, I mean, you could say more about the virtues, uh, but but I, I'll pivot because I think it's interesting. There's also arts that must be practiced. And the one for Cicero that was very important uh, is the art of, uh, of rhetoric or mm-hmm. not even rhetoric um, in a certain sense, which and what that's defined, right, as the art of persuasion through speech to the truth, which is how you respect free people. So you don't just whip them like cattle, you know, sort of or scare them or propagandize them with a million memes and just overbear their minds. You actually appeal to their both reason and emotion, right, and and bring them as friends towards something, right, in truth. Uh, but the concept that Cicero refers to as eloquence, ex loquor, right, to bring forth out of your mind speech and thus, in a certain sense, share mind with others and bring it into them. He says this is actually the only way you can have a republic or a free society is if you have leaders who are eloquent. They actually know how to bring reason forth from their own mind and share it in such a luminous way that everyone else can grasp what they're saying and grasp the ideas and hold them because they're beautifully well put in such a way that they can thus share something in common. So an idea of natural rights, let's say, which is a big important thing in the United States of America. It's central to our regime, right? It's kind of a big part of our revolution and it undergirds a lot of what we try to do to treat each other well. Well, if you don't have people who lead and are in positions of leadership and thus raised above to be heard and watched and listened to, who can eloquently communicate these things to other people, then you actually can't share these common immaterial goods. And if you do not have things in common with one another that are held and loved together, you actually don't have much of a civil society. Um, So these kinds of things, concepts of justice, humanity, charity, virtue, natural rights, uh, law, our constitution, even our view of our own leaders and and history, who George Washington is, or what did Abraham Lincoln accomplish? Why do we think Frederick Douglass is an amazing human being? These are actually things that a princeps, a prince, a first citizen needs to get good at. He needs to practice the arts of rhetoric so he can truly be eloquent, so that he can actually bring about a just society where things are shared in common. A republic is two words. Forgive me if I'm going on, I'll, I'll end here. Res publica, the things of the people. And those things are property, like actual physical things, like chickens and land and cars and you know neckties and just books. Uh, but it's also the immaterial property, right? What do we share in common with our understanding of justice, a way of life, our laws, right? Our, our customs. Um, and those things need to be articulated uh, and you have to be able to share both of them. Uh, so there's a lot that goes into this concept and it gets abused 
Augustus Caesar. Now we can talk about that if you want, but it it, it goes through a number of paroxysms. But uh, you know, it's I'd say right now it's actually making a very delightful resurgence uh, in both the academy and in civic culture. Leading citizenship is is uh, um, kind of being rediscovered yet again, as it has again and again to refresh civil society. Okay, well, that's a it's a high order to live up to those uh, magnanimity, reason, modus, and uh, eloquence. It takes uh, education, and then it also takes virtue and action. Putting action, putting oneself out there. Um, who, who are some examples in history that stand out to you as exemplar friendships? So Cicero certainly does both, not just in his writings, but in his deeds. Um, not you know not a saint not a perfect man uh he has his flaws uh and if you want to read more about them you can read Augustine's city of god where he kind of takes cicero to the woodshed um but that's because he knows cicero is so amazing but he needs to sort of point out his flaws because everyone is just overwhelmed by how amazing he is so it's not that he dislikes cicero he basically fashions his entire writings around the natural teachings of cicero but uh, but Cicero, you know, he put down the Catalinarian conspiracy. And when he realized that uh, um, basically the triumvirate and Caesar and Augustus Caesar, when he realized that the Republic was actually institutionally going to fail in a kind of more permanent way, he set about writing all of these incredible texts to basically kit out the West, the rest of Western civilization with the concepts, ideas, customs, and traditions, the idea, eloquence, right? He gave us the gift of eloquence on self-government and leadership. And that those books wind up becoming the treasures of Western civilization that have revivified self-government repeatedly. And they were foundational texts for the United States. To, so that's, that's a kind of far-reaching, not only are you a brilliant servant to try to bring about the good and prevent tyranny and destruction of your regime, even when, let's face it, the Roman Republic was pretty sick uh, and tottering. Um, but then even when it falls, he, he basically does this Herculean task of writing to, to basically kit out civilization to make another swing at self-government after a time of tyranny, which he clearly, he argued, we're, we're in one. Right. These are tyrants. These people use force and brutality. Right. They don't use persuasion and friendship and, and justice. It's might, not right. Uh, and so here's here's an account of right. And that's where all of his last writings, these incredible treasures of the Western tradition, the most read books of the entire tradition, except the Bible, uh, are Cicero's work. So um, He's one that's truly, I think, a, a next level and amazing first citizen. Seneca under Nero was another amazing first citizen of an empire. Uh, and, you know, the, the, in one sense, the concept is better, better uh, situated in Republican government. But Seneca basically tutored Nero uh, as much as he could uh, before he went crazy um, and then convinced Nero to let him run the empire basically for seven years through persuasion, sort of boxed him in like this would be noble. You know, let's do this. And he reformed the laws of the empire. He ruled justly. Uh, and then again, when when Nero did what Nero does, uh, he pivoted to writing and then wrote Seneca's epistles and some of the Moralia, which are some of the wisest texts. George Washington translated 
uh, and uh, wrote up Ciceronian texts or uh, Senecan texts to help him actually learn to become a first citizen and a truly self-possessed leader of men. Uh, so that that you see that duel of like doing justice and then realizing the limitations on doing justice and then being eloquent in such a way that not only do you serve your own people, but you serve all humanity. Uh, that's a kind of trait you see again and again in these first citizens. And then another one I would be obviously remiss given my bio, Thomas More, uh, just was I probably in one sense the Princaps par excellence. Uh, he's one of the most amazing human beings ever, uh, and his both his erudition uh, and his incredible hard work, and basically dodging many of the faults that he saw in the other great print caps he admired, like Cicero and Seneca in the past, um, through lots of hard training um, of both his body and his mind uh, and uh, and his heart. Um, he, you know, he did the same thing, exact same thing, served incredibly, um, sort of boxed Henry in, uh, helped Henry. I mean, he was a good friend and counselor to him to do some very good things, brought peace to all Europe uh, through hard, hard fought diplomacy and and uh, um, still, frankly, a lot of energy uh, in diplomatic affairs. Um, also by raising his own station, writing Utopia, which was basically the bestseller of the early 1500s um, uh, across all of Europe. Uh, and then, you know, served in a variety of roles in government. I mean, everything from rebuilding the sewer systems of London to uh, to clearing out a hundred year backlog of cases in different courts that he took over. He was incredibly industrious and never let people dangle waiting for a, uh, a uh, judgment from the court uh, the way it was very customary to do due to basically laziness and a lack of industry and concern for other people that judges were sort of slowly getting to their dockets. Um, and uh, and then eventually, you know, entered the the um, service of Henry VIII at court. Um, and uh, once things went south there, uh, after doing a great deal of good in a very short time, he turned again to, to writing an enormous number of, of books, both timeless tracks and very contemporaneous polemics. But it's a huge set of works. Um, but in there are, is also the dialogue of comfort against tribulation, which C.S. Lewis referred to as the greatest platonic dialogue ever written in the English language. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's in one sense, it's a kind of beautiful correctio, uh, a correction and a um, uh, an improvement upon, a building on uh, and complement to Boethius's consolation of philosophy uh, about how to how to both lead uh, and how to die well uh, with courage, um, even in the face of great evil and great suffering. Uh, comfort, it turns out, is not about being comfortable and comfy with pillows. Comfortis, it's with strength. How do you actually gain spiritual and mental strength under duress? Uh, it turns out there's, there's a, a whole strategy in three books. <laughs> which he wrote while he was in the tower, suffering, uh, uh, imprisoned and persecuted um, until they took away his books. But he got a lot done before they did that. So those are three. And then in the American experience, we can talk more about them. But Washington and Lincoln seem to me to be 
like truly worthy of emulation in a variety of ways. Adams, John Adams is another, uh, you know, uh, close second to them, uh, who's truly amazing. And even John Quincy Adams uh, is also another one that understudied, but a truly sort of amazing uh, print caps um, who really tried to embody these principles in a variety of ways. Um, and the more you study them, the more you're amazed at uh, how conscious they were about doing this. They were very consciously aware of becoming first citizens along the lines I've described because they were reading those kinds of books. Well, those are very heroic figures and they had a great influence on Western civilization. It, is the Princeps still alive today? Hmm. Um, so uh, I, the answer is yes. Is the Princeps still, meaning as a concept, I think the hearth fires are still burning, right? Like people are still trying to do it. If you've noticed, there's been a huge resurgence of concern with civic education. Um, I also think uh, there's been a, uh, a growing buildup of rediscovery of Roman philosophy. Um, which is this sort of taking a Hellenistic and Greek philosophical truths and uh, sort of thinking through their civic context more deeply um, than just like here are the things themselves, but also how do we take these things and activate them in a city, right? Not a little less contemplative mode and more active mode. Um, uh, those things are all, to my mind, very good signs that the Princeps is still sort of a, a fire that's still spreading around in the United States and elsewhere. Um, I think of uh, the growing resurgence in the late 20th century of interest in Thomas More mm -hmm. uh, is, is, a, is a good sign because he is one of those, the Ackroyd biography of the late 20th century. Uh, Peter Ackroyd called him the, the English Cicero. Uh, so people are sort of thinking along these lines. Um, James Hankins, a friend of mine who's at Harvard, did a uh, wrote a book called Virtue Politics, um, which is basically a kind of prolonged account of the Renaissance conception of what it is to be a princeps, uh, sort of virtue education for politics. Uh, things like our grad school down in D.C. is very much in this mode of helping people do this. Um you know, and there are examples, uh, you know, not, you know, not as uh, not as stupendous as those three greats I mentioned or our two greats I mentioned or four. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, you think of someone you can have disagreements with certain aspects of their thought, but someone like a Scalia, right, who was a, a great justice who rose to a very high position in our state uh, and wrote a whole bunch of books Um that's sort of in that mode. Uh, I think of, I'm trying to think of, you know, leaders who also were, had a special eloquence. Um, you know, speechifying is one thing. I mean, I think Barack Obama was truly a, a, an excellent speaker. And ironically, he was actually uh, one of the very few presidents of the modern era to train himself in poetic education. That is to say, the beautification of language and how to emotionally charge language in such a way that doesn't speak just to the head, but also to the heart. Um, he was a young poet and he actually, he has books of poetry that he wrote as a young man. I think that was part of why he was such a stirring speaker in his way. Some people try to, you know, it's partisan. So people are like, ah, I don't think he's that good, blah, overrated. He was great. He was a very good 
uh, and could do very high and very low and very middle types of speeches. Um, you know, so there are, I think, I think there are like aspects, but he didn't really write much. I mean, his biographies are of middling quality at best. It's probably, you know, partially ghostwritten. Like he's not a man of great letters, no offense to him, you know, like, so trying to find, uh, you, you find like aspects in different people who've risen to high office where you're like, that's part of it. That's part of it. That's part of it. Um, but, uh, but are there people who are truly great print caps right now? I don't see any out there right now. There are lots of able-bodied politicians and lots of interestingly eloquent people and lots of people with some virtue, but all of the, the qualities together in one person and add Cicero's adamant add you need a little good fortune right yeah you need you need to be in the right place at the right time uh you know to to, to rise right if you're you know if you're born in in uh you know the upper step of Mongolia right that's a hard place to you know even if you have the talent to uh rise in that way right um but uh the the concept's alive um, and you can see a lot of people are trying to imitate it in a variety of ways. And I, I do think it really is a question of education. Um, I'm very proud of what we do. Uh, and I can tell you that some of our students basically go back to their own congressmen and senators and, and help them actually raise their game uh, with counsel. But you have to have, you have to have an image and an idea of both the whole idea of being a great print caps and then all the constitutive parts, which requires study. You have to think that through. Uh, a book on this, I, 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 I've spoken generally, but just if people are interested, a, a book on this is, I really recommend, is Cicero's On Duties. There's lots of English translations. Um, they're all of, you know, some merit, if not excellent translations, but any one of them will do quite nicely. Uh, that's an incredible book on this. I don't agree with every sentence of it, but overall it lays out a lot of uh, the concepts. And then another one by my own teacher, I don't know if I've got it here in my my holdings, but uh, Jerry Wegemer, Gerard B. Wegemer wrote a book called Young Thomas More and the Arts of Liberty. Uh, and that's, that's a, it's expensive. Maybe get it for your library. <laughs> uh, but um it's uh, from Cambridge University Press, and it's all about the incredible amount of study and the particularly intense and thoughtful course of study that Thomas More put himself on as a young man to prepare himself for leadership. And it turns out there are a number of really are refined and articulated. It's like if someone was going to go become a astrophysicist. And it's like, well, just try to mix it up and gain some experience in astrophysics. Right. OK. That's fine, but that's not going to make you the, the best, right? You go to a lab, you're also, you're going to want number theory, mathematics, right? You're going to need propulsion. You're going to need rocketry, like whatever. You're going to need all these things. And the more of those ancillary things you have, particle physics, et cetera, the more you're going to be able to sort of bring together all of the constituent parts to truly move the science forward. Think of that in terms of political leadership first First citizen leadership, there are a lot of instruments, tools, and refined pieces of knowledge that can be woven together. Um, and that's an that book gives a very 
incredible map of one of the probably I think ten greatest political men, maybe top top three, um, and what he did to prepare. Thanks so much, Dr. Mann. Good. Very good.